Get out your Bibles. Turn to near the end, right, very near the end, uh, Revelation. This is what we've been studying these last few weeks. Uh, great bedtime stories for your kids, especially like chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8. There's like trumpets and dragons and beasts and fire. And it, it, some of you are like, yes, like it's scary stuff. <laughs> um, and so I don't know what to do with some of these chapters, which is why Pastor James was assigned these particular chapters. I know if you're looking at your watches, you're like, man, we've had a lot of things today. We have. Um, and I always wrestle with it as a, as a pastor. We want every little element. Some of the Sundays, we just have a lot of different things that end up being on the same Sunday. We want to give everything meaning. But the one thing we never want to trim and we don't want to cut out is, is preaching the Word of God. That's the, that, is, that is like what we put at the top. We love worship. We love all the other fun things that we do, and they're extremely important. But God elevates His Word to like this high, untouchable. He elevates it over experience, over all kinds of other things. So we want to make sure, even if we can't give the full allotment of time that we, that we usually give on a Sunday, we want to make sure we give, uh, we give special time for us coming together this morning, opening up our Bibles and learning together. Okay, you're not going to hear just from the opinions of your pastors. Our pastors spend time understanding the best we can what the Bible is saying and bringing it to you. So open up to Revelation. Uh, Pastor James has like like 30, like 25 minutes to cover like this much revelation, but I know he can do it, right? You know he can do it? Come on, Pastor James. Welcome him as he comes. He's going to teach to us this morning from Revelation. Uh, good morning. All right. Oh, there's my water. All right, real quick, a cool opportunity that uh, we also have to get together with your Echo family. There is a uh, sign-up sheet out in the foyer. We're going to an Ironbirds game on August 12th, um, and so if you're interested in joining us for that, you can sign up in the foyer and talk to Paul Maldice and get some details on that. So I promise that is a final announcement for today. Uh, let's dig into Revelation chapter 6. Quick reminder, remember, Revelation is not just a map of the end times. It wasn't just given to us so that we could figure out who the Antichrist is. I know that's the question that we always ask in every single generation from the time Revelation was written up till now and past us, we'll, well, assuming we continue, we'll, uh, we'll ask that question and we try to identify, oh, what's the deal with the dragon? Who's the Antichrist? Why are there human faces on the locusts in chapter 9? We ask all these, all these questions, but we do need to remember that this was given first to a very specific group of people in the first century. And anything that we pull out of this text must first be applicable to them. God gave it to them. He didn't give it to us first. If he gave it to us first, maybe it could just be a map of the end times. So we could say, oh, that guy is probably the Antichrist, and we do that anyway. Maybe we shouldn't. But uh, this cannot just be a map. There has to be something more to this. Um, so just a quick reminder, I know that you are excited about having those questions answered because I'm just like that. I love the puzzle that is Revelation and trying to figure all these things out, but we can't lose sight of the forest by examining the trees a little bit too much. Make sense? So let's, uh, let's dig into chapter 6 here. If you remember last week, chapter 5, Jesus, uh, Jesus took a scroll from God's hand, and that scroll had seven seals on it. It contains, uh, as one commentator that I've been reading uh, has said, it contains the ultimate destiny of the world, and the judgment of all humanity. It's in that scroll, and Jesus comes up, takes the scroll from the hand of God, indicating that God has ordained that Jesus is our judge. But in that moment in Revelation 5, we see Jesus appear as a lamb, and that is to remind us that our judge is also our sacrificial lamb. 
the one who became the very payment for our injustice so that we could be spared his judgment. He advocates for us on our behalf, even as our judge, so that we can not only be spared judgment, but so that we can have a great life here on earth and a great life eternally um, with God in heaven. So right from that scene, we enter Revelation chapter 6, and Jesus begins unsealing the scroll. Remember last week, he is the one who is worthy to take the scroll and to break its seals. So he begins doing that in chapter 6. The first four seals that he pop off, pops off unleash the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And uh, this is just great. This is good quality Christian programming. There's death and there's pestilence and famine and all sorts of great stuff. And again, this is where the questions start. Oh, who are the horsemen? You know, are they men? Are they angels? Are they, do they represent spiritual famine and spiritual death? Or are they symbolic or whatever? Stop for one second. Calm the question. And uh, remember to listen to this through with, uh, with the first century ears. So I'm going to walk us through this before we get to our, our text that's in your notes today. The first seal pops off and there's a white horse. His rider carries a bow and a crown and he rides to earth to conquer. Jesus breaks the second seal and a red horse appears, the color of blood. This rider carries a sword and he goes to earth to bring war and bloodshed, right? This is good Christian stuff. Values here, people. Uh, the third seal the third seal pops off and there's a black horse and his rider is carrying a set of scales and he begins announcing famine prices for wheat and barley. And he says, don't hurt the olive oil and the wine because that makes a lot of sense. And then the fourth seal is broken from the scroll and a sickly green horse appears and his rider is named Death. And he's given authority over a quarter of the earth to slay with the sword with famine, with disease, and with wild animals. And that's the first four seals. There's three more. So what's the deal with this, right? Does it matter who the, who the horsemen are? Um, you know, we get bogged down. Are they literal? Are they symbolic? Etc. But there's something that the first century church would have picked up on pretty instantly, and that is the fact that these four, these four horsemen actually make up a pattern. Conquer or con conquest or a conqueror, war, famine, and death. It's a pattern, and specifically, even with some of the specifics mentioned, like the don't hurt the, the, bar, or the olive oil and the wine and stuff like that, this is an exact pattern of ancient warfare, or what, have been, what would have been current warfare for the early church. That's what this is a pattern of. Yes, there may still be horsemen, and they may be, you know, maybe they're spiritual, maybe they're men or angels. I'm not sure if we're ever going to be able to definitively say this side of humanity what they are. However, this represents a pattern of ancient warfare, and it goes like this. First, you have a conqueror, right? There's somebody or some group of people decide that what they have is not enough, or that what somebody else has, they deserve to have, and they're going to do whatever is necessary to take it. So they ride out and invade foreign territory. What's the first thing that happens when an invading army encroaches on your territory? Go to war. Yep. You muster the troops in defense. And people ride out and fight for nation. They fight for their country, for their families, or for the whims of the conqueror. So war happens. One of the things that happens in war, as these uh, invading armies are uh, going across the land and uh, you know, conquering villages and towns, they're living off the food that they find. And when they're done and they move on to the next stage of the offensive, 
they burn the food that is left behind. Does two things. It uh, stops supplies from getting to enemy soldiers, of course, but it also uh, demoralizes those soldiers because there's no food for their families back in the village. And they live with the knowledge that every single day uh, longer that they prolong this war is another day that their children and their families are starving. That said, they wouldn't just burn everything. They would actually burn uh, the wheat and the barley because that's going to regrow in a year. They weren't going to burn down the olive trees and the vineyards because they can sometimes take decades to regrow and fully mature. The goal of the conqueror is to inhabit the land, not to destroy it. So they're very tactical with how they did that. And then finally, you have death, not just from the sword, which is from war, and not just from the famine, um, which we just talked about, but also from disease, um, as morbid as it is, you know, as bodies are piling up on fields or in water, they're contaminating water supplies. People are getting diseases from the water that they need to drink to stay alive. And then you have wild animals roaming through villages because there's no militia to stop them anymore. So all this pattern, even those little specifics, are very obvious to the first century church that this is first century warfare. And there is a concept behind this that I think is what God is really getting at here in the beginning of chapter 6, and that is the concept of sin, which we're all guilty of. We may not have, we may not have uh, gone out to try and conquer another nation, but all of us at one point or another have said, I am now the God of my life. I don't care what the rules are. I see something I want, and I'm going to get it, no matter what it is. The rules that are here, they're not good enough. I am my own king. I can do what I want, and I will take what I want. That's sin. Even go back to the very first sin in the Garden of Eden. God says, you can have everything in the garden but one tree. And what's the one thing Adam and Eve just had to have? The fruit from that one tree. They decided that God was not God enough for them, and they elevated themselves to the position of God, or conqueror, if you will, and that's how sin entered the world. What we see in the beginning of Revelation chapter 6 is sin is destroying the world. This is the ultimate effects of sin taking place on earth. The fifth seal is broken. In the midst of all of this destruction, all of this, uh, this destruction that sin is bringing to the earth, we have the fifth seal. And martyred Christians cry out to God, how much longer will you make us wait for justice? Sin is just going crazy on earth. People are, are taking their free will very, very literally and doing whatever they want. And Christians are being persecuted and dying. How much longer, are you, God, are you going to let this happen? And God says, just wait a little longer and I will bring justice. Then the sixth seal opens. And this is where our text is for today. As sin continues to run unchecked across the earth, there are terrible consequences that are unleashed upon the earth. And then we enter Revelation chapter 6, verses 12 through 17. This is in your notes. You can read along with me. I watched as the Lamb broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake. The sun became as dark as black cloth, and the moon became as red as blood. Then the stars of the sky fell to the earth like green figs falling from a tree, shaken by a strong wind. The sky was rolled up like a scroll, and all of the mountains and islands were moved from their places. Then everyone, the kings of the earth, the rulers, the generals, 
the wealthy, the powerful, and every slave and free person all hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they cried to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of the one who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to survive? Again, we start asking questions here. We try to find the deep meaning in what's happening, right? Is this destruction, is it physical, is it literal, is it symbolic, is it just spiritual destruction? You know, are these figs, uh, you know, the stars falling from the sky, is it asteroids, is it nuclear missiles? We get bogged down with all these questions, and we may miss a very important point in verses 15 through 17. This is a group of people who are primarily made up of authority figures, kings, rulers, generals, the wealthy, the powerful. And they're on earth, and in the face of this destruction, and in the face of God, they hide themselves in caves and ask the mountains to just fall on them and crush them because death to them in this moment is preferable to standing for one more moment in the presence of God. Interesting. They recoil from God's presence. Then you have Revelation chapter 7. God begins sealing his people to save them from coming destruction. And at the end of chapter 7, there is another group of people that stand in God's presence. But their reaction is completely different from the first group. Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. This is also in your notes. John is speaking here. He's back in the heavenly scene around the throne of God. And he says, After this, I saw a vast crowd, too great to count, from every nation and tribe and people and language, standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes and held palm branches in their hands. And they were shouting with a great roar, Salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. This group of people, representative of everyone on earth, right? Every nation, every tribe, every people, every language. They are also in God's presence. But rather than recoiling, rather than hiding and just hoping for death, they're worshiping and praising God for the salvation that he's given them. In God's presence, this group of people is rejoicing. Here's your big idea for today. We respond to God's presence in one of two ways. We recoil from it, or we rejoice in it. Unless something changes, the way we respond now is the way that we will respond then. Two things, we recoil or we resist it, or we rejoice in it. Let's go back to the people in Revelation 6. In the face of the righteous judge, and in the face of the fact that their sin is completely just mopping the world, they feel the full weight of their sin under the gaze of God. They become hyper-aware of their wrongdoing. Just like a thief, a guilty thief getting caught red-handed in a spotlight. And they respond to the presence of God and say, we need to put as much distance between us and him as possible. 
We need to put something in front of us that hides us from his face. We cannot stand his gaze. So they run to the mountains and they just hope for death first. Because they think death is preferable to standing in God's presence. Again, go back to the Garden of Eden. Exact same reaction when Adam and Eve sinned. The one thing they had to have was the one thing they weren't allowed to have, and they went and took it, right? And then what's the very next thing that happened? Did God's wrath fall on them instantly? Nope. They heard God walking about in the garden. They felt his presence nearby, and they recoiled. They covered themselves, and they hid from God's presence because they were hyper-aware of their sin in the presence of God. They recoiled. That's what our sin causes us to do. It causes us to recoil from God's presence. The people in Revelation 6, they're being truly seen and truly known for all that they are. All their sin is laid bare before an omniscient God, and they can't bear to carry that weight in his presence. So they hope for death. Better to end our lives than stand another moment in his revealing presence. And of course, as we've learned uh, or we'll look at in uh, Revelation chapter 20, and we covered it a couple weeks ago in John chapter 5 also, death doesn't spare anybody from judgment. The Bible teaches that we will all rise, whether we're dead or living, and we'll be held accountable, and we will all be judged. Another interesting note here about this group of people is that none of them begged for mercy. I don't see in Revelation that up to this point, uh, at any point that God said, well, my offer of mercy from Jesus Christ is, is taken away. I haven't, we haven't seen that yet. Which leads me to believe that at this point, if any of them just fell to their face and repented, that they could still be saved. But they don't do that. They are so in love with their sin, even in the face of complete annihilation, they would rather try the quick and easy escape of death than confess their sin and ask for forgiveness. It reminds me of, of stories I hear um, about people carrying, they carry their sinful secrets to the grave. Better to just carry it, to just hold the weight. If I put it out in the light, it might hurt people I love, which of course is one of the consequences of sin, but if I just keep it, I just take it to the grave, it's preferable, it's preferable to putting it out there in the light. It's easier than confessing and asking for forgiveness. Remember also that this group of people is made up of authority figures, right? Kings and wealthy, powerful people. And I wonder if maybe that's a symbolic way of saying all of the people who refuse to bow down to anyone else. In other words, people who refuse to bow down to God who say, I know, I understand that sin is destroying the world, I understand it's partly my fault. And I understand that God is angry with the destruction that I am bringing to earth. But I'm still going to be my own God. I will cling to this until the day I die. I will remain my own God, I will not submit myself to anyone else. And rather than stand in his presence, I will recoil, I will hide and hope for death. Then you look at the second response, people in Revelation chapter 7. 
They're rejoicing in God's presence. Completely the opposite, right? They're not running and hiding. For the people in chapter 7, God's face, his presence is not something to fear. It's not something that they're scared of. Because they've been forgiven. They've had mercy extended to them. The weight of their sin is no longer on their shoulders. So when God's presence is there, there's no sin to reveal because it's been taken care of by Jesus Christ. They see salvation in God's face rather than condemnation. They feel the lightness of freedom rather than the heaviness of sin. Remember Jesus in Matthew chapter 11, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. They have felt the weight of their sin lifted off their shoulders and they can stand pure before God, not for anything they did, but because of the sacrifice of Christ to whom they owe their salvation and to whom in that moment they are rejoicing and singing songs of praise. Let me submit to you that that's that's why we sing songs of praise in church. We don't have a time of musical worship with three songs because it takes you guys three songs to get ready to hear the word of God. If you come in, and you laugh, but if you come in on a Sunday morning and you expect us to get you ready to worship God, you got things backwards. The reason we sing songs like that in church is precisely because he is worthy of praise. Just like these people in Revelation chapter 7. We sing songs like we sang this morning where we talk about the greatness of God and how amazing he is. We sing Amazing Grace. We sang it last week at the picnic, right? Because we recognize how in need of grace we are and how amazing God is because he provides that for us. Something we desperately need and we can't manufacture for ourselves and God gives it to us. That's why we sing songs like that. That's why we sing songs like Only a God where we extol the virtues of our God because he is so great. That's why we sing songs of praise in church. That's why people like us are in heaven in this part of Revelation chapter 7 and they're worshiping God because he is so worthy of it and because they recognize that they can exist in his presence and not feel burdened by the weight of their sin but be free to rejoice in his face. I'll never forget this. Uh, Moses Frias, a couple weeks ago when I was preaching, he did our, our prayer and greet portion of the service, you know, where we close out worship and, and uh, greet and shake hands and everything. And he, he said in two minutes, he basically preached this entire message. Uh, he said that what we were doing in that moment as we were rejoicing and, and singing songs is a dress rehearsal is a dress rehearsal for what we're going to experience in heaven. I will never forget that moment. All of us here at Echo, we represent peoples and nations and tribes and languages, don't we? We're from all over the place, but we're here together and we sing songs to God because he's worthy. And we can stand in his presence and not feel the need to recoil, but we can rejoice in his presence because we've been redeemed. So here's my question to you this morning. How do you respond to the presence of God? You got two options, right? You recoil or you rejoice. 
uh, I've heard it said, and if you've been in church, you may have heard something similar to this said uh, in the time that you've been here. It's impossible to stand in God's presence and not be moved, right? They're absolutely correct, because God's presence will cause you to do one of two things. It's like what Pastor Phil said earlier. You will move closer to his presence, or you will move further away, depending on your relationship with Christ. You will move further and closer to him, or you will you will move further away. And can I submit to you this? This isn't just a question to identify whether you're a Christian or not. It does that. If you're here this morning and, uh, and you felt what Pastor Phil was talking about, that manifest presence of God, and you just kind of felt uncomfortable and not like weirded out because like people are raising their hands, but like something inside your spirit just felt a little, a little odd, it very well may be that that is your natural response in recoiling to God's presence. But Christians can do this too. Have you ever, have you ever like really screwed up during the week and then gone to church and, and not gone prepared and, and you kind of thought maybe, maybe the worship will help me feel better about the fact that I messed up? Um, this is maybe six or seven years ago, I, I royally messed up. Like, I dropped the ball big time, big sin stuff. Um, and I remember the next, the very, it was, I don't know, it was like midweek, and then I went to church on Sunday, and uh, as people were singing songs, I just, I felt wrong. I was still carrying sin. I'm, yes, I'm redeemed, like I'm saved and everything, but there was sin in my life that I, had, that I had done that I hadn't confessed. And in that moment, in the revealing presence of God, I recoiled, and I backed a little bit further away from his presence, because it was, in, in, a, in an indescribable moment, I was, it was almost like I was being called to account for what I'd done, and the fact that I hadn't confessed it yet, and I just felt wrong, and I recoiled from his presence. And thankfully, I had some people around me at that moment that helped me to walk through that and helped me to confess so I could return to a place where I could rejoice in God's presence. But here's something that, I, that we do. If you, if you mess up during the week and you don't confess and you get here in the morning and, and we're singing songs and sometimes a little part of our spirit recoils, it's... It, I, I have to say this before I say the next thing. Um, Pastor Phil didn't look at my notes, okay? All he knows about what I'm preaching today is what's in your guys' bulletin. That's what I sent out. Um, so what he was saying earlier about, about cautioning us to not resist God and to not recoil from his presence is absolutely in line with every single thing that, that God has kind of brought me, all this conclusion that God has brought me here to. And I don't want you to miss that fact. We're not like, colluding this is not some secret thing where we're like oh if you come up and say this thing first then they'll all be like oh wow it's a miracle no 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 <laughs> that's not what it is god's spirit is not schizophrenic and if we're all on the same page he communicates the same thing but here's the deal psalm 22 says that God who is holy inhabits the praises of his people. When we come together and we sing songs of praise, that's actually one of the reasons why we experience his manifest presence in a service like this. Because we're singing his praises and he comes here and inhabits. Yes, he, he inhabits our heart. We have the Holy Spirit with us all the time. 
But that's one of the cool things about being in church, and even, even not in church, just being at home and worshiping by yourself. In the praises of his people does God dwell. And so when we come together and we sing songs, God wants to dwell with us and he wants to be made manifest in that moment. But if there's parts of our heart that we haven't yet given to Christ, one, that can stop us from reaching everything that God has for us, but two, it can often cause us to recoil and back away a little bit. Remember in the big idea, I said unless something changes, the way we react now is the way we're going to react then. And yes, that's for non-Christians, but it's also for Christians. You don't, Christians don't just drop their faith and walk away. Several of my friends who I grew up with uh, in church, who, I mean, like some even people I even went to Bible college with, um, who are no longer serving the Lord, I know how it happened. They've told me it's because they made several little decisions to recoil from God's presence because they did something, they maybe sinned, or there was maybe there was a part of their hearts that they never really gave to Jesus. You know, we said, Jesus, be Lord of everything, but except for this, and they held it, and that kept causing them problems. And every time they would come together and worship, a part of them would feel uncomfortable because there was something yet that they still carried that they hadn't given to God. And rather then breaking through that uncomfortability and laying it down at the altar and saying, God, please take this. I don't want to bear this burden anymore. They recoiled a little bit. They held on to it and they stepped a little further away from God. And then the next time it had, you know, oh, it's not that big a deal. I just recoiled a tiny little bit. Maybe next week I'll, you know, I'll break through and, and give it to God. But remember we talked about your journey with Christ. It's not a ladder that you fall off of. It's a journey. You're either moving closer to Christ and you're moving further away. And when we recoil from God's presence, we inch a little bit and a little bit and a little bit until eventually we just decide to cut it all together. I'm not saying that's happening in this church. I don't see, I don't see evidence that we're all, you know, in danger of walking away. But one thing I do know is this, that the moment that we become Christians, we don't automatically become perfect. And part of, part of God's grace and mercy that I find so amazing is the fact that I am saved even though I know that for the rest of my life I will still be continually giving things to God. I, <laughs> I didn't have the mental capacity to offload every single issue in my life when I was saved, even though I was very well aware. And God is, through the Holy Spirit, he sanctifies all of us. It's a, it's a process. And God has grace and mercy for us in that, but can I challenge you this morning, church, uh, as our worship team comes, as you're considering what your reaction is to God's presence. Maybe you're even here this morning, and you felt the presence of God, and a tiny little part of you recoiled. Can I challenge you? Stop the recoil right now. Can I challenge you to give that to God this morning? to confess that. You don't have to stand up and shout it or anything, but can you confess that to God? Really confess it? Agree with what he already knows to be true? You already know it. If there's a part of you that you haven't given to him, or if even, I don't know. I'm, there's, nothing, there's no one in particular that I'm thinking of when I'm saying this. I'm just, I just, 
feel like I should say it. I mean, even if you, if there's something that you did this week that you regret that you haven't yet confessed of, that's something before you leave this auditorium, you got to give that to God. Don't let yourself recoil. I don't know about you, but out of these two reactions, I choose to rejoice. I don't choose to recoil. I choose to rejoice. I want my reaction when I stand in God's presence to be one of thankfulness and one of gratitude for what he's done and one of praise and one of rejoicing. I don't want to get to heaven and have an awkward conversation with God. I don't want to get in God's presence and back away from it. I want to be able to fully rejoice in God's presence. And I want that for all of us here. Whether you're here today or you're listening on podcast, I want you to be able to choose to rejoice instead of recoiling, instead of resisting what God is doing in your life. 